Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and uh, good afternoon. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm a senior correspondent at a new news service called The Record by Recorded Future. We're building what we hope will be the Bloomberg of cyber and intelligence news. And you may recognize me, though, from my prior job. For the past 15 years, I've been a correspondent at NPR, working on terrorism, cyber, and most recently, investigations. And I've spoken at the Commonwealth Club before, uh, but today I'm going to be your moderator. Our panel today is going to look forward and talk about what they see as the key threats that we face today, 20 years after 9-11. Our panel was put together to view the threats through a number of different lenses. Janet Napolitano, I'm sure you all recognize, was the Secretary of Homeland Security, the first woman to hold that office. She's the former governor of Arizona, former president of the University of California, and now a professor of public policy and the director of the Center for Security and Politics at Berkeley. So I need to say, go Golden Bears. Amy Ziegart is a professor of political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spalloli Institute for International Studies, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and the author of an upcoming book called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. And last but not least, Anthony Romero, the executive director of the ACLU and author, among other things, of In Defense of Our America, a book that took a look at civil liberties post 9-11. Secretary Napolitano, let me start with you. 9-11 made us hard and soft targets. We changed aviation security, but the new risks seemed to be a little harder to protect against. Uh, I'm thinking things like domestic extremism, misinformation on social media. What can we do to address them? Well, I think we have to be very agile and we have to be very proactive. Uh, We need to develop better ways to predict and prevent when individuals are moving from thought and belief to actual action or violence. Uh, And we also need to think about risk more broadly. For example, there are a number of risks related to climate change. And as we've seen that um, expressed this summer in wildfire and and hurricane. And and I think uh, that also goes to the safety and security of the American people. And finally, uh, new technologies, uh, both cyber, biotechnologies, uh, uh, all kinds of new technologies, which can be used for good, but can also be misused for bad. So uh, there's a, a, a lot of preventive work, proactive work that needs to be done. So Amy, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, we've been watching the polarization of American of the American public develop right before our eyes. Technology platforms have been stoking those fires. You know, at the record, we've been talking about this idea that the internet used to reflect the world. And increasingly, we're seeing it the other way around, that the world is reflecting the internet. And one of the things I mean by that is like what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. What do we do about that? Well, I think, Dina, first, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with my panelists. It's great to be at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm so glad we're looking forward as well as backward to look at the threat landscape of today. Let me answer your question by picking up on a thread that Secretary Napolitano talked about, which is you know, we're in a very different world today. After 9-11, it was, there was a lot of talk about whole of government. So DHS was stood up to really facilitate whole of government approaches. But now with cyber threats, misinformation, polarization, we need whole of society approaches. So one of the critical differences is the role of the private sector. 
Um, so we know, you know the private sector owns and operates 85% of that critical infrastructure, much of it exceptionally vulnerable to cyber attack. But we also see these internet companies like Facebook and Google, they're not just victims of cyber attacks, they're vectors of cyber attacks. And so they're policymakers. So we need an expansive definition of policymakers today, not just people with security clearances in Washington, but people in these tech companies who are now have to share in that responsibility of protecting the country. And that's difficult because they answer to global shareholders, not American voters. So when the executive order came out, uh, I want to say in the spring, and it seemed to be bringing a lot more of the private sector into the tent, do you feel like that's going to be a solution or... Is this just going to be more of the same? We've been trying to get the private sector into the tent for some time. Well, yes, and public-private partnership is a phrase people love to say, but often doesn't mean very much. It's got to mean more. So cybersecurity basic protections, like we saw with Colonial Pipeline, they can't be voluntary standards anymore. There has to be a much higher bar for organizations that are so critical to the safety and security of our country to get their cyber hygiene in order. So I think if we look at, again, looking back and looking forward, if we look at the organization of our federal government and our society, on September 10th, 2001, it was nowhere near where it needed to be, what it became. I think we see the same thing with cyber. This is a September 10th moment for cyber in the United States. We are not organized. We are not equipped in the way that we need to be to defend and respond to cyber attacks. Interesting. So Anthony, let's talk about January 6th for just a second, because uh, in a way that's so inextricably linked to social media and cyber right. and the internet. So there have been about 700 people who were arrested for playing some sort of role in the January 6th attacks. And only about several dozen cases have actually been resolved in some way. Do you think there should be a domestic terrorism statute? No, we, we have been very adamant that what government needs is not a new domestic terrorism statute. Um, that what it needs, we have sufficient law enforcement powers, statutes, criminal statutes, by which to try the insurrectionists from the attack on the Capitol. Uh, I think I, I will cite Secretary Napolitano because I think I, I believe in giving people credit. But when we were talking prior to this session, she made a point that I, that was really instructive to me. In 9/11, on 9-11, we were worried about uh, individuals who took an airplane and were trying to drive it into the Capitol. And it was the ordinary citizens on the plane that stopped it from happening and were able to divert the plane into Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm giving you full credit, but it's a great line, Secretary. So I think... You know, um, copy is the greatest form of flattery. And and here you have, you know, 20 some odd years later, and you have actually the citizens who actually attacked the Capitol in uh, this attack. And I don't, uh, we've been really clear and adamant that we don't need new law enforcement powers or new criminal statutes. We need the ability to, to, to uh, look at the events that led up to it, um, prosecute accordingly, go through the mountains of, of data that's necessary. But we need the political will to, most importantly, to, to do the proper investigation and prosecution of what happened. And that's absent in Congress, as we see. You know, the way they've been, uh, the members of Congress have been uh, stonewalling the, the, the hearing, the panel that Speaker Pelosi has been trying to put together. Rather astonishing that we couldn't get a vote to have a look-back commission the way we did with 9-11, I think it's just we're gonna we're going to do it. We're going to have a commission and a look back on what happened on in January of 2021. It's a question of whether we get it now and get it started and get while well, the information and the people are fresh, 
are we going to have to grapple with this 10 or 15 years from now? And so I don't think the answer lies in giving in enabling new statutes. And fortunately, I mean, here, I, I, I love being an equal opportunity um, critic. My, 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 my opponents are not, are not Republicans. My, Repo my opponents are sometimes the Democrats and the Biden administration. And we're like, no, 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 hold on a minute. We don't think we need to grant these, ex these additional powers. And luckily it hasn't gained traction because I, I think it's readily evident that we have different needs to prosecute the insurrectionists uh, of, of January, 2021. So we'll see how it evolves. Um, Do you think that perhaps as more of these cases are heard in court, that there's going to be sort of a groundswell of, maybe not a groundswell, maybe more than a trickle of people who are interested in having a commission to look what happened, because more of the evidence is going to come out. It's no longer going to be uh, accusations. Yes, I do think that the more that people understand. And I think the line that the secretary drew was a really important one for me, and I was hardened. This is why we, we agree on a lot. Um, you know, the line between thought and belief on the one hand and action on the other is really quite an important one. And it's important so that we don't become a nation that begins to criminalize or that begins to police thought or political beliefs. Um, there are many who may have agreed with the insurrectionists in January, including some members of Congress and maybe some members of the Trump administration. But we really have to be keep a very keen eye focused on it's very different when you believe something versus the kind of the criminal action of storming the Capitol, breaking the doors, attacking the police officers, you know, uh, trespassing in offices, taking computers, hunting members of Congress, literally hunting on the on the Capitol grounds. And the idea that we, we are not even willing to have that type of reckoning, uh, I think, is 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 uh, we're going to we're going to have it. We're going we're gonna to have to have it. Um, and it's just lamentable that we can't seem to start it now. And Secretary Napolitano, do you think that as more of these court cases are actually heard in public, that that sentiment will change? Or do you think it's just so partisan it can't happen? Um, I, I, well, I, I think we live in poisonously partisan times. And so I, I'm not that optimistic. What we may actually learn a lot from is the commission uh, or the committee, excuse me, that was ultimately established in the House, because they've already started with a, a pretty broad ranging uh, set of document requests and, and, and the like. So uh, they, um, I, I think um, they're intent on doing a very serious overall investigation as to what happened. I, I would feel I feel remiss if we didn't actually talk a bit about Afghanistan given what's happened. And I think we've all been following what has happened over the last couple of weeks quite slow, uh, carefully. Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan when it planned the 9-11 attacks. And there are legitimate questions as to whether or not this will be deja vu all over again. So Secretary Napolitano, looking forward, how is the withdrawal from Afghanistan going to affect our security? Well, I think we... We, we probably don't know the full extent of the, uh, the effect, um, but I, I, I think I can reasonably, we can reasonably foresee there'll be some degradation in our ability to collect intelligence. Uh, uh, we won't have the kind of resources on the ground that, that uh, we, we have had. 
I think uh, there, there's got to be some sort of um, uh, impact in terms of how other countries view the United States uh, in terms of our willingness to commit uh, resources, to sustain resources. Uh, um, you know, I think, you know, that tale is yet to be told. So one good thing I'll say is we're now out of uh, Afghanistan. And we're, we're no longer uh, going to be spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. And I, and I think that's a good decision. Are, are you in the camp that thinks that al-Qaeda will come back uh, into Afghanistan? Yeah, I'm not sure that al-Qaeda ever really went uh, away. But um, I do think that's, you know, one of the impacts could be on our the intelligence that we get and, and can ha- can have on a real-time basis with respect to Al-Qaeda or any resurgence of an Al-Qaeda-like organization. So, Professor Ziegart, I've always found it incredibly ironic that the Taliban wants to bring Afghanistan back to the caliphate times, but uses social media so effectively. How do we combat that? How do we, uh, is there something the platforms can do, anything the U.S. government can do, Cybercom hacked ISIS uh, in a story I did for NPR uh, about a year ago. Should they be hacking the Taliban too to make it harder for them to get their message out? So Tina, you've raised a really important question, which is we have old adversaries empowered by new technologies dealing with us in new ways. Um, So it's not just that emerging technologies are the tools of Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, the most active in cyberspace, but they empower everybody. So this is a new battleground, and it's a battleground for recruitment. It's a battleground for our minds. How do we deal with that? I wish I had a really good answer for you. I think what we're seeing is Cyber Command leaning much more uh, forward in um, hacking our adversaries and taking the fight to foreign uh, networks before they come here. I think it's the right move. It's not enough, but I think it's a move in the right direction. We know we didn't deter a whole lot by sitting back and playing perimeter defense here in the United States because it doesn't work in cyberspace. But the key question, I think, for whether it's stopping terrorists and their recruiting or stopping Russian election interference is psychology. How do we think about inoculating our society from being manipulated at scale? Because what we're talking about is tools of mass deception in cyberspace, whether they're um, utilized by domestic actors or foreign actors. So how do we then harness the insights of psychology to understand what keeps people from getting manipulated? How do we know these things when we see them? And how can we use that capability to um, erode uh, the the efforts of uh, foreign actors like Al-Qaeda? So I think Cyber Command has started down that path. But, you know, if you look at the Facebook Oversight Board, for example, there's not one expert in psychology on that board, right? We need to, what's the right expertise to deal with this moment? It's not where the expertise was in the Cold War, even exactly where it was post 9-11. We have to think more expansively. Yeah, one of the th- one of the terms I've heard out of Arliss about this, the University of Maryland think tank, is this is known as cognitive security, trying to secure the six inches, or in your all cases, eight inches between your ears that makes people persuade you to do things. Anthony, this, this is a bit of a bank shot off that, but you know yeah. we've seen a lot of these ransomware attacks. We've seen stolen information from nation state actors. Yeah, uh, the NSA and Cybercom have said they're fighting with one hand behind their back. Yeah, because they can't uh, what we call sniff or take a look at domestic networks, and, and they have to be outward facing, as Professor Ziegler said. Perimeter. What did you call it? Perimeter defense, which is a really great term. 
So given current events, do, do we have to look at this again? We can always look at it again. It's a question of how we decide it. And I, I guess I would part company with some of the recommendations that have been made that we need more surveillance to answer the threats of like the solar winds attack or, or others. Uh, and I, and I just, I, I, I'm not fully, I'm not convinced. And I think it's, it's a preferable role for me to play the skeptic in this process. But I, I do, I do want to come back to a second on Afghanistan. The ACLU doesn't take a position on, on war. Um, our, our issues around the declaration of war is only from a process perspective because um, that power is entrusted to Congress. And so our concerns have always been about whether or not when, when we go to war and the authorizations of the use of force is a sufficient specific in terms of the enemy or the geography or the target. And when we raise concerns, there are procedural concerns, not kind of substantive concerns about the, the proper uh, reason to be in Afghanistan or leave. That being said, we are still very much concerned about how these wars or non-wars get waged. And I was troubled when I heard kind of a very bellicose President Biden say, we will never forgive, we will never forget. And it was indeed uh, evocative of the way in which President Obama used excessive executive power in targeting what we believe was the, an extrajudicial killing of individuals outside of the specter of the battlefield. And it was a place where we really did, did part company with the administration at the time. And I worry about the evolution of these kind of technologies to fight wars, but that kind of skirt the system of checks and balances in place where the war powers is more, is more uh, concentrated in the hands of the executive. And I, I think these kind of drone killing programs, and you remember Secretary Napolitano, I, I don't think that was in your era, I think it was with Jay Johnson when he was at the, at the department. But, you know, the, we really did lock horns with the administration on behalf of Anwar al-Awlaki, who was being targeted in Yemen, not the subject of an official declaration of war, a U.S. citizen. Uh, let me just jump in here. Anwar al-Awlaki, for people who don't recognize the name, was an American-born, I think it's safe to say, radical cleric who started out as just having a huge propaganda following on, uh, on YouTube channels and various people. A lot of the people who went to go and fight for ISIS and al-Qaeda had a connection to Anwar al-Awlaki. Go ahead. And Sorry. The, and he was on the government's target list. Um, they even bragged about it, that he was on their list. And that the president himself was reviewing who was on the list and authorizing it. I found that breathless at the moment. Usually one works very hard to keep the commander-in-chief's fingerprints off of such, a, such an operation. But this time they were kind of very explicit and saber-rattling. And we were... And, Anwar Laki's father came to us and said, won't you please try to do something? Why is his government hunting him down outside of an active battlefield without judge, jury, or kind of uh, where's the innocence of, of, of uh, the benefit of, the, of innocence? And ultimately, we lost that litigation, and he lost his life, including Anwar Laki's son, who went to find his father and... Uh, and was mistakenly picked up by one of these drone attacks. Um, he was also a U.S. citizen. I think he was 17, if I remember correctly. It's all memory. 16 or 17, yeah. 16 or 17. So I 
Remember yeah, but that. Here, here's the thing about Alaki. Alaki is a really tough case. And, yeah. and Anthony, I'll uh, give to you that uh, killing an American citizen abroad is not a decision that should be made easily uh, or frequently. But Alaki was an unusual case. He was not just uh, a recruiter. He was a planner. He was an operator. He was directly connected with plots against Americans and on American soil. Um, and yet he was hiding in Yemen yeah. uh, outside the reach of law enforcement in the United States. So you have this tension between, uh, you know, our, our due process, our judicial values, highly and but also our security ba- values. When somebody is taking positions and, and making actions that are uh, directly contrary to the safety of Americans. I, I don't doubt that the administration and those involved, and perhaps you or others, were convinced of that. However, when you are talking about matters of life or death, you'll forgive me if I just remain skeptical in terms of that is not a, a decision one only vests in a sitting U.S. president or a general. Um, that we do believe these due process rights and the innocence and to proving you don't get a chance to release them if you get the if you get the evidence wrong. There's no way to conjure him back on earth. And so I I'm just still stunned by the and and it's and and again I was very critical of the of President Obama. I'm an equal opportunity critic. It's it's why I don't go to many dinner parties. I don't get invited out much more. It's a, the pandemic has been perfect for me because I just get to stay in my dining room where I am now. But I, <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's something that concerns me. I've had these discussions and debates and even sometimes polite arguments with friends like Harold Cohen and others who I know I disagree with. Um, but that that being said, I mean I want to go back to the question you asked about: Do we need to think differently about? The, what the solution is. I mean, we should have those discussions. I, I would love to know, and I know Professor Ziegard, you're much more expert on this than I am, and I was able to read a bunch of what you've written and, and watch another recent uh, lecture you gave at the Hoover Institute, which I found really informative. But I haven't yet been fully convinced, and maybe folks can send me information or correct me, that the events that led to the solar winds hack was really kind of a lapse in intelligence authority powers or just a lapse in uh, intelligence gathering. I don't, I don't fully understand how it happened, how they got into all these massive systems. And I understand that you're, you're, you're saying that there's more a focus on the perimeter than there is looking externally. I've heard the same criticisms around the, the Einstein program of which I'm, you know, I'm a novice on this. So I'm, I'm really yeah. getting, I don't know that you're going to find people on this panel going, yay, Einstein really works. I, I understand. We all agree on that. One. Exactly. So, so <laughs> I, I think before we figure out, let's give them more powers. Let's figure out why it, why it didn't work this last time around. And well, I'd love to understand it a little bit better. And the fact that we haven't spent a lot of time delving into uh, this massive hack, I think I, I just will have to remain skeptical about granting additional law enforcement or surveillance powers to the government. The idea was in that case that that was different because it was a company that was in a supply chain yeah. that had its own security issues. Perhaps a better example, and your point is a good one, would be Microsoft Exchange. Yes. Where 
that was missed. And there's a real sense that if they were able to see some of the network, they were using servers in the US that they couldn't see and they were dumping the information into servers in the US. And then just to set the table there, um, Professor Ziegart, do you want to talk a little bit about that? With respect to cyber, you know, some people are recommending more authorities, but I think the Biden administration has been pretty careful about yeah. saying they don't want additional authorities. So I feel like that's a bit of a straw man argument at this point. The, the real focus, and I applaud the administration for doing this, has been on how can they work more with the private sector to really have something more robust. So I know Ann Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor, has said, you know, we go into restaurants and we have a grade. We know how, how um, what the health of the restaurant is, right? The ABC, is it a, is it a good place to eat or not? We don't have that with software. We don't have that with products. So we have basic uh, capabilities that the government requires in all aspects of our life, whether it's seatbelts or food uh, service uh, organizations, that we don't have in cyberspace. And that is leaving our country exceptionally vulnerable to massive theft of IP and to potential crippling attacks on our election infrastructure and other things. So if we think about what's the biggest threat that keeps me up at night now, it's cyberspace, right? Yeah. This, is a, this is an arena where it's, emp it's empowering the weak and the strongest are actually the most vulnerable because we're so digitally connected and we have these freedoms of a democracy that makes us susceptible to manipulation. But I also think, I, I, I agree, but I, can I just jump in for a second or two finger yeah. in the bunch? I mean, I agree and I disagree because I think part of the reason why some of these systems are insecure is because the government likes it that way. I mean, because it, it creates back doors for them to exploit ways into systems that they were, um, that allowed them to do their, you know, their, whether it's perimeter or other type of surveillance. And in some ways, it's both, the, the, the idea that they create opportunities for the government to conduct surveillance that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And I have to also point out the kind of hypocrisy of government that's trying to sometimes take on some of the tech companies on encryption and kind of and, and fighting them tooth and nail on end-to-end -end encryption. I mean, we had to jump in on the Apple litigation when it's the government itself who's trying to make the Apple iOS system less secure. And so I, I, I completely I, so agree with you on I'm that. I'm having a hard time saying, oh, we can't, we, we don't have these systems to be so secure when in fact the government is trying its very best to exploit the vulnerabilities and then to kind of crash down the systems that are more secure. And I so, think it's, so I will say, I think it's really important to be more specific about the government. The government is not a monolith. There were really different views within the U.S. government about that Apple FBI. Should no, Apple you. have forced, right. should Apple be forced to weaken its own encrypted products for law enforcement to access the, the cell phone of a, of a person who killed other, you know, in a terrorist attack? There was vigorous debate within the U.S. government, within individual organizations. So not everybody believes in weakening encryption in the U.S. government. And no, it's really important it. to be specific about that. Secretary Napolitano, if you'd been sitting in your secretary seat when this uh, Microsoft Exchange thing happened and CISA came to you, the uh, the agency that sort of helps watch over these sorts of issues and said, hey, I think the FBI needs to go in there and grab these web shells. And we don't have time to tell every single one of these people that we need to do it. Um, and so I'm not saying which I'm, that I'm on either side of this. What What would have been your response? My response would have, would, would have been uh, to say, um, how extensive is the breach? 
what kind of time would it take? What kind of damage can be done while we're going through that process so that you could weigh on the one hand, uh, the um, what the kind of time it would take to alert everybody that you're going to be going in and 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 fixing the situation uh, versus just going ahead and doing it and authorizing the FBI to do it. These questions we're talking, they're not easy. They're not black or white for the most part. They have, they're very situational and you really have to dive in and understand what the risks you're trying to mitigate and the costs and benefits of the decisions you're being called upon to make. Yeah, and just putting one more layer over that decision for people who might not have been geekily following this in the same way I was. Um, there was a real concern that there was going to be a second wave of attacks, which would be ransomware. So your dentist office, your mom and pop shop, all these different places would all all of a sudden find themselves, their systems locked up. So it wasn't just that the web shells were sitting there. It was a concern that that the next thing would happen, which I'm sure would have been in the calculus if you had been in the seat and they'd been asking you. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Um, what do you think, Anthony? What do you think about the FBI getting a court order and actually changing things on the network without permission? I know you're not a big geek. I'm just sort of on no, the- No, no. I've, I've been trying to, I, I have to wait for Professor Ziegard's uh, textbook to come out before I can <laughs> kind of pretend to sit for this exam, but I've, I've tried to brush up on it. I mean, look, it's, it's an imp- it, was, it was a necessary solution to a, kind of a problem at the time. I'm a pragmatist. I, I sometimes get criticized from the left because of it. Don't like it, but I understand it. And at the same time, I also want to probe a little bit further about what- what the government did not, how the government did not know earlier, um, and I, I want I want to hold you know, and and we can talk about what which agencies, Amy. I think you're totally right that it's not a monolith, and there are different cultures and different approaches and different competencies and different abilities, right? Because there are you know, there are some parts of the government that you wouldn't trust to kind of turn you know to fix the carburetor on my 2011 Audi. And there are others that you would allow them to kind of really kind of you know drive the future technologies. But I, I, I'm I'm still I'm still trying to understand it. I, you know I'm I'm I, I'm a guy of of somewhat more than average intelligence, and it's still and I'm doing this for 20 years. And if it's vexing for me, oh my God, then how can we really expect the public to play kind of an informed role? I mean, I think we have to really rethink kind of informed consent, the engagement with the public, oversight in Congress. Uh, I totally agree that needs to be rethought and revamped. I mean, I, I'm struck by a number of different things I've been reading in, in, in prep for today. It's just like, you know, in the, the Wanna Cry program, right, um, where I read from some of my own technologists, we did hire a bunch of computer scientists on payroll because we think code is policy and i don't understand code so i have you know four or five individuals who are trained as computer scientists who come to us from the tech world and you know i was reading some of their writings what they understand and then they write it for folks like me who don't understand the technology all that well you know it was the idea that in the WannaCry program the government knew about the vulnerabilities in microsoft and didn't really disclose it it's just i find vexing and troubling and it's only after that they did do it. And I think it requires a whole rethink of uh, oversight, both oversight from Congress, uh, public oversight, 
judicial oversight. I think it's anemic. You know, the one place where I'll, I'll, I'll pick an argument, a polite one, and with great respect and deference, Amy, but, you know, I, I did listen to the talk you gave at Hoover where you said that the, that the NSA disclosure of Edward Snowden of the NSA wiretapping program in the end showed that nothing was found to be unlawful or illegal. I, I don't know how you can say that. I, I will send you the, the opinion in the Second Circuit, which was our case, where the judge patently said that the NSA's mass, you know, the Section 215 program uh, was not constitutional. It's a Second Circuit opinion at the federal court. I don't know what more is a definition of illegality, but when a court strikes down an aspect of that program that, you know, obviously then was revised and then now is sunset. But I think we, I think it's in that context that I remain, I am very comfortable and very contented in my skepticism. You know, I want to, I want to see the proof. So we've talked about the risks of polarization. We've talked about cyber. We've talked about Afghanistan. We talked one way or another about Edward Snowden. But I think that um, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about two legacies of 9-11 that we're still dealing with today. And that is uh, one, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which was created in 9-11's aftermath. And I think Secretary Napolitano, you told me it was the biggest government reorganization since 1947, which was kind of an amazing fact. And then the second legacy is the military commissions at Guantanamo. So. Let's start with DHS, Secretary Napolitano, since we have you here. If you could wave a wand, which I know DHS secretaries can do all the time, and fix one thing at DHS, what would it be? I would, if I, if I had a magic wand, um, I would separate border security from interior immigration enforcement. And, and leave border security to DHS. It's very consistent with uh, its mission, air, land, and sea. Uh, and I'd put in, interior immigration enforcement uh, back in the Justice Department. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Anthony? Because I know that immigration is, is one of the things that you've... Is, is that how you would like to change DHS? If yeah, you could only I, I, I wave your wand a, to get one? I might go a step further. I might grab the wand from Secretary Napolitano's hand and see if I can move more of the immigration service out of the Department of Homeland Security. I, 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 maybe, Tell me why that's important in the, well, in, just, in, the just, in the context of, of 9-11. Well, I mean, I, in the context of 9-11, in the context of the era of Donald Trump, um, especially, I mean, I think... Um, I just worry that, I mean, I'll start philosophically, I'll be quick. The, the idea that we, we, that we deal with the immigration arm of the government as part of the threats to the homeland, I, I always, it was too much for me to kind of, to, to countenance and to accept. And even when, you know, we had good people in charge, like Secretary Napolitano and Jay Johnson and, and Governor Ridge, I think did a very fine job as, you know, in his best. But I just... I just have a I have trouble with that part of um, our nation, you know, the Emma Lazarus, you know, Statue of Liberty in the Department of Homeland Security. So I would probably take more out um, and maybe grant it in within DOJ um, uh, or in the State Department. Um, I don't know. Uh, I also think that that I was concerned. I mean, part of what I was a bit, a bit provocative on this one too is that. I was watching the department uh, secretary 
in the, the waning days of the Trump administration. And I was aghast at how DHS agents were being used, what seemed to be very political purposes that were giving me shivers down my civil libertarian spine. You know, the deployment of DHS agents in, in Portland. Portland. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the yes, sweeping I, of people I, I, off the streets. You know what? I were, totally And agree. I was just like, oh, so then I'm just, I was done with the yeah. department at that time. I'm just like, let's break the whole thing apart. Let's, that we're, we're ending the forever war. Let's end the forever Department of Homeland Security and get some security, in, get, get a different way of thinking about security. And so I was worried. I mean, otherwise, the military had already backed off from being Donald Trump's lackey in the context of Lafayette Park. Excuse me for being so crass, but that's what I saw, right? And so they kind of realized we have to get out of politics and back into kind of the, 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 the neutral zone for the military. So Lafayette Park was a moment for them. So after Lafayette Park, the only thing that the president had left to command and control was DHS. And I was just like, oh my God, this is the biggest, you know, this is the second biggest agency. Or, and there's a third. lot to, third, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> So I think I, I would go further and I, let's have some oversight and some hearings and let's, let's have the conversation. We, we created in the aftermath of 9-11. It is very much a 9-11 legacy. Um, let's, let's, let's revisit it. If we're, at, if we're leaving Afghanistan, let's revisit it all. Let's shut down the military commissions. That's where you were going, Dina. I, I, I don't think they, they haven't worked. Um, that was your, you're going with that question. I don't say that you have an opinion, but you know, they haven't worked. They, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd. I was reminded by one of my staff, we are still litigating in front of the military commissions. You know, we spent $13 million representing defendants in the military commissions. They're in pre-trial motions still. It's, it's for 20 years. For 20, 20 years plus years. Motions, yeah. Well, and and what's family ironic there better. is, remember in 1993, there was an Al-Qaeda-based uh, uh, truck bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center. Cool. Um, I remember. And it was investigated by the FBI and sure. they identified the the plotters. Uh, they were arrested. They were all tried in federal court in the American judicial system. Uh, so that system has been proven to, to work in a terrorist type situation. And uh, I, I think we were perhaps too quick to set it aside when we established Gitmo. But I think there's one thing I can add, Dina, if I could for a sec, is that one of the things I want to kind of put a put a a spotlight on is so many of the national security policies and the war on terror responses. Really, the the weight of that felt most acutely, at least domestically, on the Muslim Arab and the Amemsa South Asian communities. And I, I think we need to draw back the have a conversation that we we were having, but we were not really willing to kind of have as openly as we as we ought to now that we're not in the heat of the moment. But there's really a lot of these national security policies, the no fly lists, the what the 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 voluntary questioning of young Arab and Muslim men between the ages of 18 and 33 that Bob Mueller and the FBI kind of undertook really requires a kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic that all these kind of liberals and progressives, that's who I will name, right, flocked to the streets and to the airports 
when Donald Trump passed the Muslim ban, right? Which was a Muslim ban, which we challenged in court and lost ultimately because he fixed it on the third try. And everyone was aghast that, you know, that he was targeting Muslim countries. Oh my God. But let's remember the policies and the war on terror and a lot of the domestic screening, the no-fly list. You look at who they're actually, you know, the 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 uh, the laws passed on on charitable giving. The 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 impact that it had on Muslim charities, in particular, we issued a report in two thousand and nine. And so, I don't think we can talk about the nine eleven, even if we're looking forward, because part of the 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 racist. Uh, baggage of the 9-11 policies on the Amemsa and the, on the Muslim South Asian and, and Arab communities are still the legacy that we've got today. And um, I, I think it's a different moment. I think we should have a more uh, a kind of a more fulsome conversation about it. And I, I know, Amy, some of your scholarship has looked at actually the impact on communities on people, which I think we have to, it's so easy to have a national security discussion and not ever talk about individuals, except if they're kind of like notorious kind of defendants. But there were, there were massive numbers of people implicated by these policies that I just think bears mentioning for us. So thank you for the, allowing me the, the frolic and detour on it. We had talked at the beginning of our conversation a little bit about domestic extremism. Yeah. Amy, do you, how do you, how do you see the law and law enforcement sort of shifting? There's clearly a shift. I think that the January 6th cases, if I can just add my opinion for a second here, the January 6th cases are going so slowly because they're trying to figure out what that pivot is going to be and to be consistent. Given what you've done in the past about the way communities were focused on post 9-11, what do you think is going to happen with this? Well, I wish you know, I had a crystal ball, but I don't. Um, I will say a couple of things. Anthony, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, when we think about, although President Bush was very clear this was not an anti-Muslim response. I mean, he was very clear about that. And I credit him with that, that over time, I think, obviously, and particularly in the Trump administration, um, we really had an anti-Muslim tilt to the security conversation. At the same time, though, I think if we look at local law enforcement and differences across the United States, there were some real green shoots there. So um, I was part of a, um, a board created by the LA Police Department after 9-11, and it included leaders of the Muslim community. And the thinking then was that we have to uh, engage the Muslim community yeah. um, and in support and collaboration, and that that's the key, not only to who we are as a people, but to protecting the nation. And that was much more successful than some other models. So I think there are some yeah. bright spots in yeah. the response, but a lot of dark spots in the response too, is yeah. particularly in the Trump administration. And I do think that George Bush said the right things. He went to the to the Islamic Center in Manhattan. I, I give him credit for the words. However, the deeds, I mean, when you look at what John Ashcroft did in terms of the summary deportations in the early days after 9-11, they were, oh, I mean, look at the, the research and the, and the writings of individuals. You know, Stephen Brill's book, in after, after uh, talked about how law enforcement agents were going down the, the telephone book in the quaint old days when you actually had a telephone book. And I, so I agree that there was at least a difference in the official... Uh, statements from the Bush administration compared to the Trump administration. But um, I just think that the, 
it, it all came home to roost with the with the Trump administration. So we were not. I, I wasn't as surprised that that would become kind of a scapegoat that the president would use in a very nativistic um, uh, 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 racist way. I don't use that word lightly. It took me years before I would use the word racist to describe the Trump administration. My colleagues were often critical of me because I would be reluctant to use it. But I think ultimately when you saw what played out and how they actually conceptualized policies, it, it was rooted in kind of views of, so of ethnicity. So I think, so, you know, to, to get back to your question, I think, you know, there are a couple takeaways. Number one, with the Trump administration, we see that so much of our democracy was uh, rested on norms and not formal authorities, formal processes. And we see the dangers when we rest on norms that um, where the weak spots are in our democracy. In terms of domestic terrorism, I think the FBI director has been very forthcoming about the domestic terrorist threat. Um, that we face, that it's much more serious, uh, has accounted for more lives lost than jihadi terrorists coming in from the outside of the United States. So it's a real and present danger. Um, it was, as Secretary Napolitano, I'm sure knows, before 9-11 in the 1990s, when we talked about, in the early 90s, when we talked about terrorism, it was domestic terrorism, Oklahoma City, for example. Um, so, and the challenge here, again, is organizational, too. Right, so we have a National Counterterrorism Center, one of the success stories of the post 9-11 reforms, um, focused on international terrorism. We have the FBI focused on domestic terrorism. What happens when there's more of a nexus between particularly extreme right-wing groups, domestic and international? How are we going to fill those scenes in a way that is cognizant of American civil liberties? These are hard challenges and we're going to be facing them in the days ahead. Right. So, and when you say a nexus, so for example, alt-right groups in Germany or something like that, uh, inspiring people here. Yes. I wanted to end on a more hopeful note. And Secretary Napolitano, um, Professor Ziegart, you're teaching the students now who weren't even alive during 9-11. Um, how, do how do they learn from 9-11 in a visceral way? Well, um, yeah, I'm actually co-teaching a course on security policy here at Berkeley, um, and we just uh, had a lecture on 9-11. I had them read the 9-11 Commission report, uh, which was revelatory to them. Uh, and, um, you know, that report was written in a way different than other government reports. It was written as narrative history. It tells the story. And it's been a very impactful report, the recommendations from that commission. Uh, most of them have been uh, uh, turned uh, into reality, with, with the exception of uh, relieving some of the number of congressional committees that have oversight over the Department of Homeland Security, which is in excess of 100. And then I described for them what I was doing on the morning of 9-11. I was the attorney general of Arizona, was in Phoenix, waking up, getting ready for work. And all of a sudden on NPR, uh, they announced that a plane has hit the World Trade Center. Uh, and I think it's an accident or something. And then a second plane hits and I yeah. and I think, hmm, this is, doesn't sound like an accident to me. And, 
and then all heck broke broke loose because we had questions out in the states. Um, the governor wanted to know whether she could activate the Air National Guard to fly protection around the nuclear power plant outside Phoenix. Could she shut the border? Should she cancel school? Should we cancel the Major League Baseball game that night? Uh, and all and there was nobody in Washington D.C. to call. There was no playbook, and so. We were really starting from scratch at the state state level. And so that's how um, I, I introduced our students to 9-11. So, so my first day at CNN in New York was September 11, 2001. So, uh, that's, so I never knew New York before 2001. I only know post 9-11 New York. So Anthony, let me twist the, uh, just give the, the question a little tweak. Yeah. Young lawyers coming into the ACLU who didn't experience 9-11. What, what do you, how, how do you put that into a legal framework for them so they understand? You know, I think luckily we, um, we documented a lot of what we were doing in real time, both in our legal actions and in annual reports. I pulled out the annual report from 2002, which was January, right, three months after. And it kind of chronicles it in real time. And, and, and luckily the organization takes you know, they, we're 101 years old. And so we take the history kind of somewhat seriously. You actually learn a lot from your own history. And the ACLU was born out of the Palmer Raids, you know, very similar moment in 9-11, where, you know, the immigrants at that time were being deported by Mitchell Palmer. Um, we, you know, had the courage of standing up to a very popular president in FDR when we challenged Japanese-American internment, one of only two groups in America who dared to question FDR lost that case in the Supreme Court, obviously. Um, we, we totally shrugged in the 1950s when the moment of the House of Un-American Activities, the ACLU was largely missing in action. Some of our offices did okay, but the leadership was really problematic. We shared the minutes of our board meetings with J. Edgar Hoover. We expelled communists from our board. We kind of shrugged because um, we were worried about being shut down by Hoover. And, it was that history that kind of, for me, was instructive. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to be the guy who's like the guy who was running this place in the 1950s. I want to be like Baldwin in the <laughs> with Korematsu. And so I think if you pass down that history well enough and if you have, we have an archive that is rather thorough. You know, we, we, were, we were targeting kind of, I mean, it was, John Ashcroft was literally rounding people up, most of them, you know, South Asians. We couldn't get the data from our own government. You know where I got the list of people who had been detained and then summarily deported? I got them from the, the embassies, especially the Pakistani embassy, because I figured out that the Vienna Convention meant that our government was probably informing the embassies and the consulates when they were deporting people. So I, you know, I was able to write to the ambassador, the consular general in, in, of Pakistan in New York. I'm like, do you have a name? Do you have the list and the names and the phone numbers? of the people that Ashcroft is deporting. I was litigating to get it from the U.S. government. I got it from the Pakistani embassy. And then I tracked them down in Pakistan with a documentary film crew to show that these were shopkeepers and cab drivers and newspaper stand owners. And these were good people that we just totally kind of ripped up in our moment of racist xenophobia and deported them because we were wanting to kind of keep us safe from another terrorist attack. And I think that the story evolves from there. But I, but I think having to tell those narratives, I think it's great, Amy, that you show the images because those images are important. And 
I'm a New Yorker. I was in DC on 9-11. I had just started the week before 9-11. You know, talk about timing. Me and Bob Mueller showed up at the job at the same time. And, you know, we, we learned how to kind of really adapt. And I think the organization, um, I think the best we do is just to kind of make sure that we kind of ask the tough questions, even when they're unpopular. And it was liberals and progressives who were as, uh, as afraid and as complicit in the silence. I, I mean, I just, I need to say this so I don't sound like a kind of a partisan hack, which I really adamantly uh, opposed any, any folks who put me in that categorization because I really think our issues are bigger and broader. And, um, but it was, the, the, I remember the conversations early on, Senator Wellstone, may he rest in peace, knew that the Patriot Act was bad law and said, well, we can't challenge the president. Uh, we just need to get behind him. Senator Kennedy voted for the Patriot Act. Only Russ Feingold voted against it. Senator Schumer, Senator Biden. Um, they And many of them knew precisely. Some of them I had personal conversations with. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is going too far, too expansive, too quick. This, this was supposed to end on a happier note. So I, um, well, I, well, I was saying is I think that <laughs> history, have, have I think that history is going gonna, is gonna to help the next generation not repeat. The mistakes of the past. I, there is something very different about, you know, we didn't rush to judgment with the with the insurrectionists of this last year, right? The idea that we didn't rush another Patriot Act following the insurrection. I totally take your point, Amy and Secretary Napolitano, Janet, um, that that does mean that the Biden administration understood that that's not what they needed or wanted, and they didn't ask for it. So that's that's a sign of success. I think the fact that there's a kind of a very vibrant civil society. And look, I, I, I teared up you know, in a positive, happy way. I know this sounds so crazy, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit that way. Um, I, when I was taking down my Christmas tree on January 27th, literally a month after the holiday, um, because I didn't have time to do it beforehand. And that was the day that the day after the president had signed the executive order on the Muslim ban. And I'm taking down the ornaments that had dust accumulated on them because, you know, they've been there for over a month. And when I saw people rush to the airports spontaneously, no one told them to go there. We didn't tell them to go there. No one told people just spontaneously got into Ubers and cars and cab, went to airports. And when you saw the sign saying, we are all Muslims, I thought we're going to be okay. <laughs> Even with Donald Trump as president. And I, I teared up and I get, and I still feel like that's the arc of, change and we're not there yet and i know that i'm not being you know i don't, I don't want to be overly optimistic but we'll be okay we'll, we'll ask these hard questions and we'll engage the way we need to and we'll be we'll be totally we'll be totally fine if we ask these questions um secretary and, napolitano uh uh could i just give you a, a last word here and and, and professor zegart too Something I'm gonna, hopeful I, i'm gonna agree with anthony uh you know and and uh and and we can and we must do better. Uh, but if we have the joint commitment to, to do better, um, we, we will. I mean, American history is full of ups and downs and twists and curves, but um, it, it does move forward. And uh, Professor Ziegart, Amy? So uh, turning back to students, I think what always makes me feel most optimistic is teaching students in the classroom their idealistic, they're smart, they're eager to learn. They don't take history as destiny. 
Um, and they're open to crossing bridges that we might never think about. So one of the programs I lead at Hoover pairs military fellows and diplomats with current Stanford undergraduates. And the one requirement for our Stanford students is they have to have no prior exposure to the military or the State Department before. So you can't preach to the choir. You have to be building bridges to different communities. And so that's been an eye-opening experience for everyone. Um, the students showed our military fellows last year that climate change was a much higher on their priority list uh, than the fellows might have thought. And the students learned a lot from the fellows about what it was like to be them and to have to deploy to Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. So whenever I get pessimistic, I just turn to undergraduates and they're amazing with their optimism and their capabilities. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. And uh, thanks to all of you so much for um, a conversation that was uncongenial, but still uh, was able to get uh, points across. And I think that's an important way for people to see us talking about these different point of views, to be civil, even if you disagree. Uh, and we, I think we did that quite well. And uh, thank you also to the Commonwealth Club who hosted today's event. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this concludes our special virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.